Well, hello everyone, and welcome back. Welcome back to an episode of Gaming from the First Age. It's been a bit of a bit of a while, hasn't it? Busy, I guess, is the only excuse that I can give you. So sorry for sort of this, this sort of slight gap in between episodes. I have been busy and busy with the gaming, so doing a few YouTube videos about fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons. That's been a lot of fun. And running, of course, the Confer fourth edition online convention as well which was again a lot of fun and the other interesting feature of uh, confer which i'll just briefly mention here in the intro to this podcast is it's it's great when you put something out and you create something and in my case it will be you know creating a space for other people to come and play uh, i do that quite a lot i just i seem to get quite a lot out of it i think i may have mentioned that and so confer was really interesting one of the <laughs> one of the one of the things about Confer was we got people to come in and, and people started to sign up and wanted to run particular games. I thought it was really really nice. And um, this 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 chap turned up and it was Ron Edwards and I thought that's interesting. Uh, it's not it's not the Ron Edwards, is it? <laughs> So I sort of, you know, every so often he'd sort of pop up and sort of and he ran a game, which is fantastic. Then he posted something about some of the some of his background and some of what he what what he's been doing in the past. And yeah, yeah, it was the Ron Edwards, a luminary of the uh, role playing scene, a very very sort of switched on and uh, thoughtful uh, commentator and indeed writer of role playing games. And I stupidly, and it really was stupidly. I didn't, I didn't kind of equate Ron with Fourth Edition Dungeons and Dragons. I, I, I saw him more in a different mould, and that's only because of the, I'm going to say, rudimentary connection I had with him through some of his material, some of his games, and so that was really, really nice. And after Confer, I got to have a chat with him. We had a bit, bit of an interview on his Adept Play site. And I'll do a link to his Adept Play site uh, in the show notes. It's well worth seeing where he's focusing, again, on actual play and looking at uh, how people are gaming and exploring their games. Really well worth checking out that site as well. It's strange, isn't it, that the things that happen because you put yourself out there. Another recommendation, I guess, for creating spaces and seeing what happens because sometimes it's really quite unexpected and really, really nice. So, I guess it's a podcast of two halves. Some really nice call-ins from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. So I'm going to uh, play those and perhaps a few quick responses on those. Uh, touching on some topics of the podcast that have run through uh, recently. Then I guess, in some ways, the other, the, the other main segment, breaking out of a good thing, is... I think a response to Che Webster's excellent Roleplay Rescue podcast, and in particular episode 907, Finding My Blend, System Fluid. Now, I did a call-in on that, which Che very kindly uh, played and responded to, and that was aired on the Rolling 1D6 call-ins bonus episode, which is quite recently. Now, I, I wanted to explore those some of those themes a little bit more, and maybe talk a bit about where I am. Now, Che has a system-fluid approach, which I thought was really, really interesting. So he focuses on setting and story and then kind of fits a system 
that meets the player's needs around those key elements of setting and story. So the, the system, if you like, is sort of flows around the players, the setting and the story that he wants to tell. And he wants to fit that system around the player's needs rather than presenting the system integral to what he's doing. Now, admittedly, when he says that, I, I think the selection is a set menu, but they do vary and, and they're going to produce some different results at the table. Now, I thought that was really interesting and that really wasn't me. <laughs> so not only am I sort of system static in the sense that if I come up with a game, it's usually got the system integrated completely in what I want to do. I play a wide range of RPGs. So it's not that I am, you know, locked into one particular system, but when I'm conceiving a game, it's very much because I want to run that system. I'm not fluid in that sense at all. And I mentioned that I'm locked in. Uh, it sounds awful, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm locked in to some very long-running games that they've got. You know, they've got a core roster of players with some people joining uh, and leaving over the sort of space of time of the campaign, but the campaign continues. As, and, you know, it continues and grow with a lifespan. And I wanted to explore this a little bit more. And so that's what the second part of this podcast is about. So should be interesting. But for now, let's switch and listen to what Jason has to say. True 20 is interesting. So Back in the day, I never played three or three point five or Pathfinder or any of that. In the past year or so, I've played a little bit of Pathfinder one and two with Joe from Hindsightless and Che over at Roleplay West Rescue, respectively. But I've I've never played the old. And so when you have that that glut of D twenty systems, you know three point five base three three point zero base systems out there was at two thousands when everybody was making all these source books a big glut. I, I never w was involved in that and never played any of those. So it's interesting because 220 kind of falls with all that, that splat book craze, right? And recently, so you had mentioned True 20, which kind of perked my interest. And then Che Webster recently ran a one-shot for us of Alternity. Now, how does that tie in? Because he ran the new one that was recently kickstarted. Well, his running the new one got me looking, and then I got looking at the old one. And the old one was kind of, sort of, not really the, the 20 based. And then I got looking at some other stuff. Anyway, it took me down a rabbit hole. And True 20 is interesting to me because, well, not just True 20, but that D20 gaming era, I, I'm interested to find the best engine, the best rule set to play all those D20 games. Because of all those splat books, when we had, you know, hundreds of companies putting out, or dozens of companies, or maybe hundreds of companies, I don't know. But you had tons of companies putting out tons of D20 splat books of, all, of every era and every genre you could think of, right? There has to be a ton of great material in there. But what system do you use to run it? And it's easy enough to convert things to other systems. But I'd like, but I'd be interested in finding a D20 base, you know, a system that would work with all those splat books. Well, his running the new one got me looking, and then I got looking at the old one. And the old one was kind of, sort of, not really the, the 20 based. And then I got looking at some other stuff. Anyway, it took me down a rabbit hole. And True 20 is interesting to me because, well, not just True 20, but that D20 gaming era. I, I'm interested to find the best engine, 
the best rule set to play all those D20 games because of all those splat books. And we had, you know, hundreds of companies putting out or dozens of companies or maybe hundreds of companies. I don't know. But you had tons of companies putting out tons of D20 splat books of all of every era and every genre you could think of. Right. There has to be a ton of great material in there. But what system do you use to run it? And it's easy enough to convert things to other systems. But I'd like but I'd be interested in finding a D20 base, you know, a system that would work with all those flat books. So based on your recommendation and, you know, now John's of Red Dice Diaries recommendation, I'll definitely take a look at True 20 as possibly that system to let me utilize all those flat books. And, and like I say, it's easy enough to convert. I, I convert a lot of things on the fly. When I'm looking for an adventure, looking for something, I, a lot of times I don't even worry about the system because if you know the system you like to run in, you can read anything and convert it. You don't need you know, stats because you already know what the stats are in your preferred system. But it, every now and then it'd be nice to have something be able to just run things directly across, right? And True20 sounds like a good way to utilize all those multitude of splat books that are out there from the 2000s. I, I don't know what am I off or the late 90s, 2000s, whenever that was. I, I don't know what what do you think? Am I off base here? Is True20 what I'm looking for? I'm interested in your opinion on that. Well, thanks, Jason. Uh, and in some ways, you know, bringing me back to True20. And just to come back at you on True20 and my take. And its use as an engine for material in the D20 mountain. A mountain that I think, like you, uh, I completely missed. I missed the mountain. How did I miss the mountain? But I did miss that mountain. I missed the entire thing. I wasn't even looking at D20 really at that time at all. So, True 20, engine for the mountain. A cautious maybe, I'm going to say. <laughs> Magic does not come across cleanly. Uh, True 20 has broad powers. So you'd need to rethink what the magic is for the uh, NPCs, the adversaries, and how to represent it in True 20. It's not, as you say, it's not difficult, but there isn't necessarily, you know, a direct, a direct or even close mapping. Having said that, you know, it can be done. There are powers that, you know, are in the are in the same ballpark, um, but there is a touch, I, I would say, of reinvention to make that work. Now, if you do decide to head down that road. And if, indeed, anyone else who, who thinks, you know, I've got a big mountain of D20 and I wouldn't mind running it with a really interesting D20 take that is different, True20 recommended, as are two supplements that I think are really, really useful. And I, I've used both of them quite a lot. Fantasy Paths, which is a True20 supplement that offers 10 paths that show you how to create the familiar D20 classes, you know, Barbarian, Fighter, Cleric, Wizard, all that kind of stuff, using the three true 20 roles adept expert and warrior it's invaluable and it's probably by showing you how to do it it shows you how flexible and flavorful those three true 20 roles are you always look at it and think what just three roles so basically you've got a warrior a rogue and a mage that's it is it well not exactly no <laughs> it's a little bit cleverer than that so that's worth having. I'd say the other essential is the True 20 Beastery. And it gives you a ton of monsters that you can use when pulling across D20 foes. And it sort of grounds them in the True 20 way of doing things. So as a shorthand, um, really useful to have it. Um, I, I used probably probably the True 20 Beastery the most 
of those two, but both very useful. And I, I'm really not trying to sell you an entire line here. You can obviously just pick up the engine. Um, in fact, you can pick up the SRD of True20 and take a look at that, um, just to give you a flavour of what you think. So I'm, I'm not trying to sell you uh, Green Ronin books, much as I like them. Now, I may have mentioned my own Truer20, which is just a stupid play on words, really, where it takes the core game and makes some very, very minor adjustments and uses some of the options actually in the three roll handbooks. So it's just, it's kind of like a roll my own true 20. A couple of things I've done. I, I turned the crucial toughness test. Now, just to remember the toughness test, true 20 is a 3.0, 3.5 edition SRD game that has no hit points. I'll let that sink in. There aren't any hit points. What you've got is a toughness test. A toughness save effectively damage is rolled damage is sort of static uh, and then you roll a d20 to sort of see what sort of difficulty check you're creating for your opponent the opponent takes the damage difficulty check and rolls a toughness test to beat it if they beat it they are they are unharmed so the toughness test is critical to the game and is obviously makes it very different to a, a hit point style of game which just absorbs a number that that sort of deteriorates over time. Now I've turned the, that crucial toughness test instead into a static defense that the damage needs to overcome. So damage rolls are back baby. Um, so it was just a slightly different way of doing it and that actually itself was I think an idea in the Warriors handbook. I think it was in there. So certainly not me but you know it's there as part of my roll my own uh, version of True20. And the second thing I've done with True20 is I kind of rationalized the skill list a little bit. The skill list comes across from, you know, the 3, 3.5 world. Simple things. I think I added a couple in. I think I reverted to something like, you know, an athletics check instead of having separate jump, swim, climb style skills. It's entirely up to you. And I did, I have also thought a little bit about if I do drop the number of skills, do I do anything about the skill points per level? Uh, do I need to sort of drop them slightly a little bit as well? Not play tested. So when I come back to it, I may apply some of those elements, you know, back into the game. True 20 is is a really interesting 3, 3.5 sort of D20 take. It's fresh, it's different. It has its own flavour, not least in the way the powers work and in and, and in that crucial sort of toughness test. If, if you do explore it, let me know how you get on, what you think about it, if you, if you dive any deeper, and we can swap messages on it. And same goes to John from the Red Dice Diaries. If John's listening, then uh, yeah, let me know if you do take a look at it. Cool. As far as Rollmaster goes, 66 was a special critical on almost all the tables, giving wonderful results, such as, well, let's look at the Tiny M Animal Critical Strike Table. If you get a 66 with a C critical, it's a bizarre wrist strike that disarms foe, plus four hits, foe is stunned next round, add plus 10 to your next roll. If you get an E-critical, we get a b bizarre strike to eyes, destroys one eye and blinds the other eye for two days. Foe's at minus 95 and stunned for 24 rounds. So, and, and you have some variation that, of course, on everything. In fact, speaking, you mentioned Space Master. Interestingly enough, my buddy Barry of the Shadow of the GM podcast, one of your countrymen, is we've been in talks and I think he is going to run Space Master here coming up soon. 
So that, that'll be fun to, to go back and revisit Space Master. Actually, I've never played Space Master, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah, Space Master. <laughs> oh, that takes me back. That really takes me back. I can picture where I was when I was going through the tables. Wow, that is a that is a long time ago, nineteen eighties baby. Yeah, I just I just wondered, Jason, if the Space Master thing happened. I've taken a look back at your you know your absolutely prolific podcast, you know roster of of episodes. I'm thinking not, but but you've been doing a, a lot of cool things. Uh, and playing the heck out of some games, so so all good. Um, I think for me, against the Dark Master or Space Master, maybe a bridge too far. You know, I, I don't know. My mental arithmetic is pretty strong uh, and pretty fast. So uh, adding a high number to a D one hundred roll was never a problem for me, uh, as it was, as I recall, for some others. So when I played it back in the day, I didn't play it much at all really now I think about it and I wonder if I'm daydreaming but did players use calculators to work out their result maybe maybe anyway let me know how it goes if it, if it went online conventions are interesting animals I, I was able to participate in one of the first virtual grog meets had a lot of fun at that and I unfortunately my work schedules conspired to keep me from participating in virtual grog meet since, which, which is frustrating because I really enjoyed that experience. And and I've done a, a couple other things, but for the most part, I, I tend to avoid online co- conventions because I, I have a tendency to sign up for too many games and then I'm rushing from one game to the other and I'll spend the, the days playing four different games, four different groups, which while it's fun, there's something to be said about playing with the same group where you know everybody in the group as opposed to playing with strangers every time. There are pluses and minuses to both, and I think there's a lot of value to playing with strangers now and then, but I, I do think there's something for the the comfort of playing with people you know. So, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. That said, online conventions are a great way to try rules that you, and games that you have, you're not familiar with, that you're, nobody in your group knows. Online conventions are a great way to experience that. And that's maybe the greatest strength of online conventions, or if you don't have a regular group. So if you don't have a regular group, online conventions are great because you can get out there and, and, and play a bunch of games. And if you have a group that doesn't like variety, then online conventions allow you to play those games your group won't play. So there's definitely a ton of value in online conventions. I, I don't mean to denigrate them at all. And I think that safety tools are extremely important both for online conventions and online play when you first meet a group. Once you've played with a group for a long time, then you know you know each other, so the safety tools aren't that important. But for uh, groups that are just meeting and playing for the first time, they're incredibly important. I think when we hear people, you know, poo-poo online or poo-poo safety tools, it's because they're used to always playing with the same people. And, and obviously, if you've been in a group that's been playing together for five years, then all of a sudden incorporating safety tools may not make a whole lot of sense. But when, when you're playing with new people that you've never played with before, it's very important. If only because it increases that inclusivity, like you're saying. It increases that comfort factor that allows people to come and join. And I want people to come and play at my table. I do not want anybody to worry about, oh, should I play in his game or not? Now, I'm going to be upfront about my games, and some of my games are definitely not 
friendly for everybody to play in. I mean, they're welcome playing it, but you know, every now and then I'll run a game that touches on matter that people aren't going to be, that might offend people. I wouldn't do that at a convention, but you know, it, it is what it is. But, but the online tools allow that. If I want to play, if I want to run Dawman versus Dynamic Toys is a game, which I was going to run actually a face-to-face convention, then I it unfortunately fell through. But if I want to run that as a game, then there might be some things that might offend people. So we, we need to make sure people understand that ahead of time. And the online safety tools allow us to do that. So, so I think that's important. And, and I am 100% in favor of them, like you say, because if, if, if even if they're not needed in the game, even if your game is G-rated, right, or is, you know, suitable for children, the just having the online safety tools may encourage that one additional person to sign up for the convention, and that makes it all worthwhile because you're getting that person involved, and ultimately we need to we want everybody to feel they can play and we want people to be involved. So kudos to you. Well, thanks again, Jason. Yeah, online conventions, you know, clearly something dear to my heart, uh, something that I, I enjoy doing. And I do agree with you, actually. They're best seen as playing, I mean, ideally a part in a blended program of your gaming. You know, it, they play a really great part in bringing you new people, new experiences, new games, allowing you to experiment a little bit you know on on others (laughs) but yeah whereas being grounded with some great some great campaigns and running with a group of people that you really get to know well is a great blend and if you can get that blend that's fantastic and if you just for, for whatever reason you can't then conventions have that part to play don't they in being a place that you can actually do continue to connect with the hobby i guess i think safety tools are essential they're important for groups where you particularly don't know each other but i'm i have to say i'm kind of increasingly of the view that they have some kind of place in all groups maybe you know even in established groups of people that you actually do know very very well and that's that's surprising to me i mean i'm I'm sort of relatively new to safety tools but having having got into them, I can really see their place. Now I'm very happy with things like lines and veils as a way of people, you know, explicitly categorising some areas and how we deal with them in play. So either it's a line and we don't cross it, or it's a veil where we cross it, but you know, there's a gauze um, over it, uh, and we don't go into any detail. And I get your point about players you know really well, but do you really really know somebody that well? And even then. If I'm running something that ups from my usual, well, in my category, it would be a PG-13. Actually, I call it PG-13. So it's similar to what you're talking about. I I run PG-13 games. That's what I do. Having said that, if I'm heading more into 18 plus territory, then I might wheel out some tools to double check some things, even with old friends or established group members that I, you know, I, I think I know them, but but do I? Part of why I've been thinking about this is that I'm I'm considering and spoiler alert for later in the podcast i'm looking at degenesis which comes to mind it's, it's six more volkers post post apocalypse role-playing game it's quite dark it is quite adult and there is some very sort of disturbing and difficult aspects to that game which are fairly front and center not only in the way that it's written in the way that it's presented now i'll, I'll talk some more about probably degenesis in a future podcast um, i'll talk a little bit about it in this one 
Mostly I run fluffy stuff with veils over a lot of things. But whereas that's me, I can't control any other player who may introduce surprising things during a session that might make people, even people I know very well, uncomfortable. So for me, the safety tools are not just a way of me as a games master understanding the group. It's that consensual contract piece where we all agree and sign up to something that guides us when we're hitting, you know, dark or particularly difficult themes that unbeknownst to anybody will trigger somebody in that group. Discuss, I guess. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that's, that's a thing. And I'm increasingly, I think, going to use them as standard rather than specifically in an online convention setting. So that was my response on, on the online conventions. I'm pushing forward with safety tools, but I, I confess I remain actually fairly new to them and I'm, I'm learning as I go. So yeah, breaking out of a good thing. What is that about, really? This is my response or my thoughts arising from Che Webster's Roleplay Rescue System Fluid episode. And the great, one of the great things about Che's podcast is it, it does really make you think and reflect. As he goes through his journey, it illuminates your considerations about your own. Yeah, I'm running a couple of really fun campaigns. And I'm playing in a good one too. So that's three. Not all necessarily quite weekly. We don't seem to manage quite weekly, but at least fortnightly. And they're all connected because they are all in the fantasy D20 Dungeons and Dragons stable of games. Now my, my, my two campaigns are both, you know, long running games. The Pathfinder 2E game, it's over a year of play, up to 8th level. Uh, with my Dungeons & Dragons 4th edition game, set in Nentia Vale, at about 15 sessions, 6 months of play. And I'm also playing in a Curse of Strahd 5e game, which has been running for, I want to say, a year. These are not short-form games. And when you're in those, you're kind of locked into them. Now, I've mentioned before that Fantasy D20 games are built for long-term play. It's just simply welded into their mechanical DNA. Level progression, you know, rich, elaborate campaign materials fuse to encourage weekly continuous play, and that's going to be long-term. So I think roughly in both my games, I'm going to say four sessions a level. Let's just say, and if you're starting at first, there's no particular reason why you need to start at first, uh, hero to legend, um, then yeah, you know, four sessions, you know, you've got 20 levels. If you're doing the whole thing in Pathfinder, that's 80 sessions. Um, 80 sessions, well, that's, you know, weekly play. That's a year and a half, year and three quarters. Let's call it two years. And that's what the Paizo Adventure Path deal kind of is, if you want to go down all that road. No different to my 4E game. Uh, the 5e game, like I say, it just it just keeps running. If you're up for it. Now, mostly I am up for it. However, and maybe because I have three Fantasy D20 games on the go at the same time, I have to confess I am getting creatively slightly itchy feet. Now, this this means for me looking to run maybe something else that moves me on from 
that family of games. So no, I'm not going to start running True 20. <laughs> it's just too close. Even if they are such a lot of fun, and these games are all a lot of fun with a great roster of players, I do question, actually, is it something contrary in me? Well, perhaps. Maybe I'm looking at the weight of incredible games that are either gathering dust on my shelves or are yet to arrive and thinking, well, I'm not giving them any, any airing at all. Maybe a little bit with conventions, back to that piece on conventions and trying things out. But if we look at the things that are maybe sort of to come, and of those, well, they don't all get me out of the mould, actually. I've got some more coming, which are back. It was still in the Fantasy D20 mould, really. But I've got a big multi-kilo box imminently about to land, which is six more vodkas to Genesis. I've, I've got the uh, hardcover bundle. So, yes, it's a rich post-post-apocalyptic roleplay in a Europe reinvented after the Escheton fell and the bygone people have perished. I mean, you know, yes, 4th edition's Nerath is a post-Empire setting, but Degenesis would certainly move me into a new mood and system. So if I want to break out, if I feel I have to break out, then Degenesis is certainly a possible vehicle for that. And I have to confess that every time I look at a game to break out with right now, on the basis that I think my weekly play is going to stay online, I, I don't think... I could be proved to be wrong. It'll be interesting. Watch this space. But I think my regular gaming, because of the people that I've met and the people that are, I love to play with, are scattered around the well, my country or beyond. Online is the thing. So when I'm looking at breakout systems or systems I want to invest a lot of play in, I do partly look at the virtual tabletop systems, how well they're put together. I have always got role where I can put any game together on roll. So I you know I can I can do anything. It doesn't hold me back that much. But if there's a particularly strong implementation of a system on a virtual tabletop, well that will get my interest. And there is an implementation of Degenesis on Foundry. So Foundry is my other effectively my other virtual tabletop. So that you know ups the likelihood, shall we say, that Degenesis may prove to be a breakout game. But forthcoming in the next couple of months, I've got other things. And as I say, they don't all take me out of the mould. Crown of the Oathbreaker. Now, it's interesting. It's a community-driven D&D 5e and Pathfinder 2e compatible. And so for me, it will be Pathfinder. Uh, it's a dark adventure campaign through a cursed kingdom and the Fey Realms. It looks completely epic uh, and promises more F20 richness. So do I, do, do I do more of that? Well, it keeps me in the mould, doesn't it? Um, but it looks good. Legendary Games Aegis of Empire has just arrived. I'll just pick it up. You can't see this, but it's, it's a 500, what is it? 550 page-ish uh, adventure path. And uh, I'll just put it down. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, so there it is. Legendary Games, legendary size, I would say. A Pathfinder 2e adventure path, uh, I think 5e as well, across the Lost Lands, the campaign world of Necromancer Games and Frog God Games. I mean, these these adventures uh, in this particular uh, campaign setting are largely disconnected. You know, it's not your closely integrated A to B to C to D to E that you get in something like a Paizo adventure path. 
They do work as a whole as well, to an, for, at least for an extended adventures and extended adventures that I'm becoming accustomed to. We're looking at 2nd to 17th level with gaps for your own stuff, I guess. That doesn't help, does it? I'm not, I'm not going to break out of a good thing by doing more of a good thing with Ages of Empires. Lost Lands. I don't know too much about Frog God Games' Lost Lands. I've played some stuff in the Northlands. It's another big, and I mean big, you know, generic fantasy setting with you know a long series of modules large large books all set in different parts of the lost lands it's not something i necessarily would have picked out it's nicely done but there it is as i say does it help not not really now at some point i'll also be getting monty cook's diamond throne fantasy setting as its own rpg this time powered by the cipher system thanks to uh, Here Be Dragon Games. I, I just sense it might take a while. I mean, they're talking about, you know, they're talking about layout. So that's good a good sign. I don't think it's going to necessarily be that soon. I could be wrong. It's high fantasy. It involves a D20. <laughs> so does it take me far enough away? And what is it I'm running away from? That's perhaps the more interesting question, isn't it? So, Cypher. I do like Cypher. Uh, it's a very different, obviously, style of, style of game, but it's high fantasy. Speaking of which, well, actually not, not speaking of which, I have also recently received more Crown of Thorns for Simbaroom. Uh, great. Simbaroom's great. I mean, it, sort of jumping into Simbaroom would be an interesting thing to do. I, I, I rate Crown of Thorns as one of the best campaigns I've seen written out. Each of them can be picked up on their own, but they do form a whole really, really well done. And obviously Simbaroom is quite different. It's, it's dark fantasy. Yeah, possible. I don't know. I think I'm wondering if I need to pull away from fantasy. Uh, maybe that's what I need to do. And Free League, while they're at it, have further promised to send me off into old school fantasy with a further expansion to the Forbidden Lands series, which uses, you know, the sort of Free League system, the D6 system. And I've... I've had a good time with Forbidden Lands. It's a game that I've already had much fun with. Uh, I've run it here, you know, at, at home on a monthly basis. We played some nice games of it. It's something that I would like to return to. A little bit different, a little bit more old school, fantasy heroics still of a different mould. Speaking of which, I'm really quite excited about Stone Top. It's community-based fantasy role-playing, more in the PBTA, sort of powered by the apocalypse mould. It's due later this year. Something that would be different. I don't know if I need a break from fantasy, but hearth-based fantasy or community-based fantasy could be a very different expression. Whereas you're focused in on an area and supporting and nurturing and keeping an area going rather than the sort of highfalutin activity that goes on in, in high fantasy games. And again, at least promised as part of the Kickstarter, Stone Top will have a virtual tabletop expression in Foundry. So that, again, really ups my likelihood of taking that game on as a regular game. Anyway, here is where I have to admit, and obviously I've just done a quick, and I haven't covered all the things that are heading my way, and I certainly haven't blown the dust off many a thing on my shelves. I mean, my cup clearly runneth over, and I haven't even given a full shake of other Kickstarters that are on the conveyor belt. And one of those this week was A-State, which feels like a very real breakout. 
A-State, again, you, you, you may well know, it's a dystopian city. It has a sort of, a, I don't know, a sort of Victorian punk feel to it, I guess. It's got everything from, you know, high-tech, rich upper echelons to the very sort of lower tiers of society struggling in a, as I say, a heavy, a heavy dystopian f- future in falling apart tenements, uh, looking out for the next meal, kind of a, a blend of setting with mystery and with horror. It, it, it's a really interesting setting. I've run it before. I've, I've run it with the original game. I've run it with different games. The new A state that's coming is Forged in the Dark, something that I've never run. I've played in some Forged in the Dark stuff, and I've indeed I've played in the sort of quick start adventure for A state. So yeah, uh, that could well be one. I would say that it's not due to deliver fully until next year. The game is largely putting your hands as soon as you sign up for it so I have a copy of it it's not quite ready yet but it's you know it's a game the thing about the Kickstarter is is they have a lot of add-ons my goodness have they got add-ons and I I think I might wait for the toys actually a bit of a confession so let's see see what happens with that older Kickstarters are still delivering you know years after they were promised to be finished uh, such as the Modifius way really got Conan and Infinity the offer avenues away from pure fantasy d20 with at least two D20s, given that they're both 2D20 games, and some different feels. They're both maybes. Um, I think of the two, probably the easier the easier to run online would be Conan. Again, partly because Foundry has good expression of that, although theoretically it, it covers all 2D20 games. I don't quite know about Infinity, but that might be something. So, you know, there's something there. Perhaps, you know, perhaps the breakout can be convention games. Maybe I do that. You know, maybe I stick with the good thing. Because, you know, sticking with a good thing is a good thing. When does moving to the groove end up being in a rut? And I suppose that's really what this podcast is about. And I think think I'm still moving to the groove, to be honest. And maybe it is convention games where... I can express in different ways whilst keeping to that nice groove that I'm in. When I want to break out, I use convention games as a way of breaking out from that mould and exploring other games. We've got Owlbear and the Wizard Staff coming in September. And for that, I'm running a Frankensteinian RPG podcast-inspired traveller game. And I'm looking forward to that. In fact, I'm running Forgotten Princess which is a game I've run twice now. So this is my third outing of it. I'm considering a fourth at Furnace, actually, particularly as somebody has piped up they would like to play Traveller. I took quite a lot of time creating that particular adventure, more than usual, and a lot of assets were created for it, and I run it in Foundry, and it's gone quite well. So I'm get- I suppose I'm getting my money's worth out of the time that I invested in creating that game. So there you are, I've broken out, and Traveller is clearly one place that I could go. I've got the Rift boxed set, which I've mentioned uh, in some correspondence on, a, on some Discord server somewhere, that it, you know, it was sat, staring, gathering dust. So maybe I should pull that out. And for Furnace, I am indeed running Degenesis. So that is a breakout. So I've got, to do, I've got choices. The final thing I'll mention is, you know, when you're locked into these games and you're having fun with them, it, it, for me, it is just the creatively itchy feet. And my background is not running these long-running games. 
it's more probably more similar to back back to Che. It's perhaps more similar to for us a campaign might be I'm going to say eight to ten sessions. That you know well, that's going some, and then we'd flip. And it was partly because my home group was a group of GMs. We all wanted to run. So what happened? Well, we all picked out. You know, it was it was my turn, for example, and you know you you'd pick the game that you want to run. You'd pitch it. And then we'd play that for a while, and then we'd rotate. And we didn't seem to have, there might have been exceptions, but we didn't seem to have particularly long-form games. And I, th- and I think some of, some, of, some of the GMs wanted their games to run much longer than they did. But So I got used to chopping and changing, trying new things, and that has its benefits. You know, you get to play a lot of the games on your shelves, I think partly that was part of it is to get the games off on your shelves, off the shelves and played. So that's my sort of history. But going into, maybe going into lockdown, rediscovering Fantasy D20 games, well, suddenly, you know, long form games is where it's at. And that's what I've been doing. So perhaps it's part of my you know, recent past calling to me and saying, yeah, but what about this one? What about this one? Look at all these Kickstarters you're buying. Why are you bothering? You know, you read them for a while. I mean, I know it's a trap. It's a trap, isn't it? To say, well, uh, I'm not going to buy a game unless I run it for 10 weeks. Otherwise, well, I am running out of time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm retiring soon. Um, I, I ain't going to get through them all. So that's just, that's just one of those things. So yeah. The other thing I would just say is a game I haven't mentioned, but I think could be, could be the breakout game if I wanted to break out, is Coriolis. And I, I mention it because I started a Coriolis Mercy of the Icons campaign that, to be honest, stuttered. And it stuttered for a number of reasons, I think, but not the campaign itself. Or indeed Coriolis, both of which I really like. And I almost think maybe with, I don't know, maybe with a slightly different roster of players and with me reinvigorated by it, that might be the breakout game. I think there are some players who... It perhaps wasn't quite their game, and that's absolutely fine. And maybe I wasn't on top form. I don't know. I don't know. There were several things, I think, which conspired to not get Mercy of the Icons rolling. Since running that game, they've produced another hardback, so it's got bigger. There's more to it. Um, I think that could be a really nice change into that sort of Middle Eastern-infused space opera with such a lot of flavour and strong themes that are explored. You know, you are exploring the setting at its very core as as part of the Mercy of the Icons campaign. Well worth a look if you haven't looked at it, and maybe that's a breakout. So that's largely it, really. I guess what I'm saying is is that it's interesting being in long-form games, and perhaps it's that I'm in three long form games that are all d20 based and so i've got and it's i mean it's amusing it's it's it's, well i say it's amusing is it amusing where i get dreadfully mixed up between you know 4e pathfinder 2e and 5e you know they all share dna however however they've diverged in their paths and they have diverged from each other that there's still so many similarities that i do get things wrong you know it's like oh when you're prone and you stand up. 
Well, that's a movement action in Pathfinder 2E. So that provokes an attack of opportunity if you happen to have an attack of opportunity, because of course not everybody does in Pathfinder 2E. When you stand up from prone in 4E, um, that might be a move action, but you're not moving out of a square, and therefore you're not provoking. And so that isn't an attack of opportunity, and everyone's got those in 4E. And in 5E, frankly, I've got no idea. So <laughs> so that's kind of where we are. So although there is the amusing blend in my head or, or mashup of different D20 games, they are all of a kind of a, a similar theme. Hit points, levels, you know, general progression, some more than others, uh, particularly in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you know, feet every level and you, you get a whole pile of stuff every level. A lot less so in 5e, but you do get your sort of progression of different types in a more gentle way in that game 4e perhaps somewhere in the middle yeah and maybe it's just i'm looking for maybe other worlds and maybe other game systems because although i'm not fluid like che i do like a little bit of variety as well and that's very much been my history so just some ruminations i guess are you are you running in long-term campaigns and by that i mean two or three campaigns on the go that are lasting more than a year. And I would never have said that that would be me. It's me. It's what I am and what I have been for the past year. And yes, I've broken out a little bit in conventions, but it's great. You know, it, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to break out of a good thing. And the good thing is, is I'm getting to know some, some great players. We're exploring over the longer term some themes we're seeing some fantastic and interesting character development. We're kind of settling into a way of play that is is really, really enjoyable. So it is a good thing. Um, and it's that blend for me of enjoying that good thing and branching out a little bit. So I've got the creativity and to pick up and play some of these things that are coming along. What I guess I'm really saying at the end of the day is, is that I need to be gaming every day. <laughs> you know, I need to be gaming every day and then uh, I can achieve everything and I can't do that right now but as I say, I, I am heading towards a retirement I probably won't be gaming every day when I'm retiring but I have got that flexibility to try new things perhaps a little bit more yeah, so there we are let's move on to the outro so I would call that a meander a meander through possibilities of my near to medium and possibly to long-term gaming. Three games that will run, I think, for a good further year and will bring a lot of fun to the table. A desire to break out a little bit, though, as well, into other things and finding ways and places to express that. And convention play seems like a good idea, one-offs, etc. And overall, as I say, bottom line, cup runneth over so lucky 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 to have all these great games and great players to share great experiences around the table so that was it for this time around uh, i hope you're well i hope you are weathering the current crisis uh okay and you are also enjoying your gaming do get in touch and let me know how you're getting on take care and happy gaming